Exploring the history of cannabis culture. One artifact and interview at a time. This is Canthropology. Presented by the World of Cannabis Museum Project. With your host, World of Cannabis Executive Director, Bobby Black. Greetings, fellow cannabis enthusiasts, and welcome to another edition of Canthropology, the podcast that explores the history of cannabis culture, one artifact and interview at a time. Thank you for joining us. I'm your host, Bobby Black former senior editor and columnist for High Times and executive director of the World of Cannabis Museum Project. In each episode, we select different items from our collection of around 500 rare antique artifacts and artwork and invite on a special guest to help us examine their unique significance and place in cannabis history. My guest today is one of the most prominent figures in modern cannabis history. He's a man who's devoted his entire adult life to trying to change our nation's unfair and outdated cannabis laws. And in the course of that struggle, he not only earned the friendship and respect of some of the counterculture's greatest icons, such as Hugh Hefner, Hunter Thompson, and Willie Nelson, but ended up becoming an icon in his own right. Keith Strop is the founder, former executive director, and current legal counsel for the National Organization for the Reform of Marijuana Laws, better known as Normal, which is celebrating its 50th anniversary this year. He's also the recipient of the 1992 Richard J. Dennis Drug Peace Award for Outstanding Achievement in the Field of Drug Policy Reform from the Drug Policy Alliance and the 2012 Lester Grinspoon Lifetime Achievement Award from High Times, as well as the author of the autobiography, It's Normal to Smoke Pot, The 40-Year Fight for Marijuana Smokers' Rights. Keith, welcome to Canthropology. It's an honor to have you on. Thank you, Bobby. It's nice to be here. So we, we currently have a number of items in the museum's collection related to normal, uh, which I intend to ask you about during the course of this broadcast. But before we get into all that, I'd like to start at the beginning and discuss your background and how normal came about. Uh, you grew up on a farm in southern Illinois. Is that correct? Yes, that's true. I grew up on a 160-acre family farm. Uh, we raised corn and soybeans and sheep. It was a sheep farm. And next door to us, there was an apple orchard and a peach orchard. So in some ways, when I was growing up, I, you know, I just wanted to get off the farm and get the hell out of the country. But as I look back on it, it really was a lovely kind of Pacific uh, environment to grow up in. So at what age did you decide you wanted to become a lawyer? Was that something early on or did that develop later? No, my uh, my father's closest friend and, and colleague when I was growing up was a lawyer in southern Illinois, and he was someone who was uh, fairly active in politics. And so uh, I think just my the, the role models that were in front of me, uh, the ones that seemed to me to be the most attractive, they were frequently lawyers. So I think uh, I wanted to be a lawyer by the time I went to college. Uh, I don't think I had a very realistic idea of what lawyers do, but I just thought that that was a, a step up from the working class roots that I had grown up in. So so your desire to be a lawyer, was that more a desire for to, to earn good money, for respectability, or did you have some type of social justice kind of thing in mind? What was your motivation primarily? 
Well, when I first uh, started, I mean, the idea that I was going to go to law school, uh, to be honest with you, uh, it was to a large degree because I needed to stay out of the Vietnam War. Uh, I was I graduated uh, college in 1965, right at the height of the Vietnam War. And uh, at that point, if you were male and 18 years or older, unless you were a full time student, you were drafted. And uh, there were a lot of my colleagues and fraternity brothers from college who were coming home in body bags. So even though uh, at that young age, I don't think I was as focused on the serious politics uh, undermining that unjust and and needless war, it was more a a sense that I just didn't want to get my ass shot off. (laughs) And so uh, my my generation were uh, we we had a real strong incentive to go to school as long as possible. So when I started, uh, it was to stay out of the war in Vietnam. But uh, realistically, uh, that ended up introducing me to Ralph Nader, and I can explain if you want how, but at any event, I ended up with a job uh, at a commission called the National Commission on Product Safety. And with the help of some lawyers from the National Lawyers Guild, uh, they managed to get me a job at this important sounding commission. It wasn't that important. I was just a young lawyer out of Georgetown. Uh, but it was it, it sounded important enough that my draft board and you you never change your draft board where, where, at least when you used to have to register you register where you grew up and so my draft board was in southern Illinois where most kids did not go to college so they got drafted and sent to the war and by the time I came along uh, they were of the impression that a lot of city kids and upper middle class kids were finding ways to avoid the war and they were getting tired of seeing all these country kids. Uh, fight the battle. So they suggested that if I could give them a decent excuse, they would give me what's called a critical skills deferment. So uh, I, because I was hired by this presidential commission, I ended up being given a, a critical skills deferment. And I went to work and spent the two years I would have been in Vietnam. I was working at 16th and K downtown Washington, D.C. And uh, nobody or very few people at that point had ever heard of this new national commission. But most people by that point had heard of Ralph Nader. Ralph had come to Washington as a consumer advocate. He had written a book called Unsafe at Any Speed about the Corvair. And then he had expanded into uh, protecting Americans from other dangerous products. So when, when Americans would have a problem with a product that uh, they'd been injured by, they would often write Ralph Nader a letter And so Ralph would let us come up to the staff from the commission. He'd let us come up to his office once or twice a week and read through his mail so we could see which products were causing the problems. Now, I don't want to get too deep in the weeds, but my point of all that is I I had never heard of public interest law until I met Ralph Nader. I thought lawyers, uh, you know, went to law school and went back home and and got rich and led led a traditional life representing individual clients. But what Ralph introduced a lot of us to is this concept of public interest law, where you use your law degree and your legal skills to try to impact public policy rather than to try to help individual clients. And so by the time the commission was over, uh, that was in 1969-70, I was too old to be drafted. And so for the first time in my life, I had a choice as to what I wanted to do with my career. 
And by that point, I knew I wanted to do something in the public interest field. I had first smoked marijuana uh, in 1965 when I was a freshman at Georgetown Law School. So by that point, I'd been smoking for six or seven years. So in a kind of a naive uh, step forward, I decided that what I wanted to do uh, was to start a project to legalize marijuana and represent the interest of marijuana consumers. Wow. So as a uh, as a member of what were called our Nader's Raiders, right? You were yes, part of you're, that. You're absolutely you're absolutely right, by the way, Bobby. I was good friends with the first two or three classes of Nader's Raiders. Uh, he would have three or four young lawyers come down every year and spend a year or two in, in an internship with him here in town. And so uh, I got to know them, and uh, they were they were we were all getting high together. Now, not Ralph. <laughs> yeah, Ralph yeah. Was a, Ralph was always a straight guy, and I doubt that he's ever even smelled marijuana smoke in his life. <laughs> but uh-huh. most of the Nader's Raiders were the products of my, my generation, and they were almost all uh, marijuana smokers. So we used to spend a lot of time hanging out and getting high during those early years. Wow. So it was your experience with uh, with, uh, with that group that led you to want to create a consumer advocacy group for cannabis users. And so it was it was kind of the inspiration behind Normal, which you founded in 1970, right? Oh, it was absolutely the inspiration. I think but for that experience of, uh, first off, uh, having the fight to stay out of the Vietnam War, it sort of radicalized me politically. I began to realize that it wasn't just the war in Vietnam that I opposed. I opposed a lot of things the government was doing, including arresting, you know, hundreds of thousands of marijuana smokers every year. So uh, it was a direct result of that experience working with Ralph Nader that I ended up deciding to, to start normal. Now, again, I, I want to concede that I think I was a lot of naivete and, and um, uh, you know, when, when you're young, everything seems possible. And so uh, when we started off, found it normal, I remember someone asking me during those early years how long I thought it would take before we would succeed. And foolishly, I think I felt the need to provide an answer. I'm not sure if I believed it, but I think at the time I said I thought it might take us uh, 10 years or longer to do it. And, of course, that was 50 years ago. So it, it, it's taken a little longer than, than I thought when I was a young man. Sure, sure. So um, you got started with uh, some seed money from the Playboy Foundation, which uh, was associated with Playboy Magazine and Hugh Hefner, of course. Um, and then Playboy went on to become your primary sponsor for at least the first few years, right? Oh, they were our, our first major fund. They were our first funder, period, the first – uh, the dollar that ever came in the door came from Playboy. And during the, the first 10 years of our existence, during the 1970s, they were by far our largest funder. Now, starting along about 1974, I guess, when High Times was established, we began to get some support from High Times as well. Uh, and then over the over the years, uh, High Times became our biggest supporter. But during the 70s, it was Hefner. And by the way, if, if you got a moment, sort of interesting how I even got to Hefner. Um, uh, one of the Nader's Raiders, actually, a, a lawyer by the name of John Esposito, at some point said to me during those early years, uh, he said, Keith, have you applied for funding to the Playboy Foundation? And I actually had never even heard of the Playboy Foundation, but I started asking around about it. And uh, one of the people that I was using as an advisor at the time was former Attorney General Ramsey Clark. Um, 
Ramsey's father had been a justice on the Supreme Court, and Ramsey was appointed as attorney general by Lyndon Johnson. Uh, but he eventually became opposed to the war in Vietnam. He resigned his position as attorney general and became a leading anti-war advocate. He had published a book called Crime in America that came out, I believe, in 70 that I had read, in which he called for legalizing marijuana. So once I decided to found normal, one of my goals was I wanted to see if I could get Ramsey to help us and to work with us. And I managed eventually to get a meeting to see him. And one of the questions I asked him, I said, look, I been suggested that maybe I should look to the Playboy Foundation for some funding. But I said, I'm not sure if I should, you know, because obviously the Playboy magazine and the foundation were somewhat controversial. And I, I wasn't sure if it was a smart move to make. And Ramsey said to me, he said, well, first off, it's a great project and you should do it. It's important. And do it while you're young so that, you know, if you fall on your face, you can pick yourself up and start over again. But he said, as to Playboy, now, here's a guy who had been a U.S. attorney general. He published probably six or eight books by that point. And he said when he went around the country to give speeches, the one thing people knew about him was they had read his Playboy interview. And he said, so I can tell you, he said he, he, he had gone through the same uh, balancing act I was going through. He didn't want to necessarily be identified with all the centerfolds in Playboy. But on <laughs> the other hand, back then, that magazine had a reach of something. I think it was six or seven million subscribers a month. And each issue of the magazine got passed along to three or four other people. So it was a, a, an incredibly effective way to communicate. So at any event, uh, based on that, I went ahead and apply, applied to the Playboy Foundation and they sent one of their board members out to, to meet me and to, I guess, make a preliminary decision as to whether they wanted to work with us. And then the next thing I knew, I had an invitation to come out to a meeting for the Playboy Foundation Board of Directors at the Playboy Mansion in Chicago. And, uh, of course, it's where I first met Hefner and, and got to make the presentation to Hef. We later became good friends. And during the 70s, I spent a lot of time with Hefner and and his supporters and assistants. And uh, the Playboy magazine was incredibly important. They used to give us $100,000 a year in direct contributions. They gave us two full-page ads in their magazine for free that we could use to raise money for normal. And probably most important, in the section of the magazine called The Forum, which where they cover news events, anytime we could identify some young man who had been taken off a college campus and thrown in prison for five years or 10 years or whatever. If we could focus on them and, and bring in a couple of lawyers and file some motions to see if we couldn't get them out of jail, Playboy would cover it. And so we began to have a lot more impact nationwide because Playboy covered the work we were doing. Yeah, that, that's amazing. And Playboy uh, – well, you went on to eventually do your own interview in Playboy in 1977. But Playboy, um, interesting, brings us to the first item in our collection that I wanted to chat with you about, which is a uh, signed numbered print of a cannabis leaf inside some concentric squares with the words liberate marijuana around it. And below that is some small print uh, with the address for the normal office in Washington. And then down in the right corner is an ink stamp with some French language and a sticker saying Playboy Enterprises VIP private edition and a signature from Fairchild Paris, which I, who I believe is the artist. Can you tell us a little about this item? Uh, was it something that was auctioned off to raise money or do you happen to recall what year it might've been from? 
I think it, I think that one is 71 and uh, it was so it was really early in the normal uh, saga. We we founded the group in late 1970, uh, but we worked for the first few months out of uh, my my own private home at 21st and N Street downtown Washington. But after a few months, I moved to an office a block away, and I noticed on that sticker you're talking about that Liberate Marijuana sticker. There's an, a small address at some point. And it's an address of that office that I moved into for a few months in 1971. By 72, we had moved to a place at 23rd and M, which we stayed at for at least a decade. But uh, so that was a it was a very early item. Uh, we used to sell the stickers. It was one of the ways you know we raised money. Um, but I think clearly in this case, that one looked to me like it had been offered as an auction item at a benefit auction. Uh, we used to do that fairly frequently. We still do, actually, whenever we hold normal be- meetings or legal seminars. One of the ways we supplement the revenue is we usually have an auction uh, in which we have cultural items like that that people pay a lot more than they're worth just because of the historical significance. Okay, but you, but you don't have any particular insight on the artist or how it was designed or anything like that? Well, un- unfortunately, I'm a 76-year-old man, and when I go back and look, I, I mean, I'm sure there's a story there, but boy, it didn't stay with me over all these years. <laughs> okay, <laughs> fair, fair enough, fair enough. There's more, more stuff for us to discuss, so no worries. Um, so, uh, you, so you were just talking about 1971. Normal had been founded in 70, and then I want to talk about 1972 because it seems to me that that was a really big year for for both you and the organization. So right out of the gate, in the first few pages of your autobiography, you talk about how you met both Hunter S. Thompson and High Times founder Tom Fursad on the same day in 1972 at the Democratic National Convention in Miami. Would you mind uh, sharing a, a very brief retelling of that story for our audience because it's such a great story? Sure, I'd, I'd love to. And by the way, I might add that I briefly met Jerry Rubin and Abby Hoffman at that same same time, <laughs> wow. same place. What a, what a day, um, what a convention. Yeah, you know, we were all young and, and enthusiastic, and we, we believed in what we were doing. Um, and so with the Democratic Convention coming, it's a convention that nominated George McGovern, and those of us who were young and liberal thought for sure, you know, we, he was going to be our next great liberal president. Didn't work Didn't work out so well. <laughs> but in any event, uh, I packed up, uh, in fact, uh, a woman named Margaret Standish, who, who ran the Playboy Foundation, came with us. Uh, two or three people from the normal staff and Margaret Sanders and we jumped in. I had an old Volkswagen camper at the time, and we drove to Miami Beach uh, to, to attend the Democratic Convention. And the first night I was there, uh, there were some bleachers where if, if you were delegates, you had assigned seats. But, of course, for those of us who were not delegates, they had a separate area where you were allowed to watch the convention, but you didn't have a, an upfront row. So I was sitting in the bleachers that first night just trying to uh, adjust to what was happening, and I smelled some marijuana smoke, and I I looked down, and uh, I could see underneath me this kind of tall, uh, lanky guy who uh, was smoking a joint, and I looked, and I thought, man, that's Hunter Thompson. I'd never (laughs) met Hunter, but uh, I had seen pictures of him in places, and I was familiar with the first few installments of Fear and Loathing. Uh, in Las Vegas had appeared in the Rolling Stone. And that, that's the only reason I think I probably knew who Hunter was at the time. At any event, I worked my way down uh, through under the bleachers and walked up to Hunter and uh, stuck out my hand and introduced myself and told him I had 
just founded a new marijuana legalization lobby called Normal and, you know, gave him a card. He handed me the joint and we uh, became fast friends. And in fact, he served on the Normal Advisory Board for the rest of his life. Uh, Hunter and I ended up being good friends, as I say, right up until the time of his death. It was a, he was a marvelously fascinating, interesting man. And I was delighted to to have his help over the years. He came, in fact, and, and spoke and played a role at some of the early normal conferences. Now, also, I think it was the second day I was there, uh, in order to keep the demonstrators away from the convention, what the Democrats had done was they had taken a park that was about two blocks away, which was designated by uh, those of us attending as the People's Park, uh, as contrasted to the establishment, and they had just given the park and said, you can essentially do whatever the hell you want. As long as you do it here in this park, we won't bother you. So, uh, you know, all of us would end up during the day spending a lot of time in the park. Well, in one corner of the park, they had something called a people's pot tree. And if you wanted to buy marijuana, uh, you would go to the people's pot tree and Somebody up in the tree would lower down on a like a fishing pole with a string. <laughs> they would lower lower down a cliff, and you would I don't know give them a hundred bucks or fifty bucks or whatever it was at the time, and then they would lower you a half an ounce of marijuana or an ounce of marijuana. I'm not sure how much. Well, it turns out that the guy I, I bought some marijuana that way, and the guy in the tree was a guy named Tom Persad. And at the time, again, it was two years before High Times Magazine was started, but uh, Tom was, was a smuggler and, you know, flew his own plane and smuggled a lot of marijuana over the years. He also started, of course, the Underground or Alternative Press Service, which was like an underground version of AP or UPI. Um, he, Tom was a brilliant man. There's just no doubt about it. But, of course, at the time... Uh, I thought of him simply as an interesting cultural figure. I, I didn't know that years later he would, of course, play a major role in the legalization movement, but he certainly did. Now, real quickly, we're standing in the Doral Hotel. I think it was the first day we got there, and the Doral Hotel was the hotel where George McGovern had his campaign based. And I'm standing there passing out normal flyers, and we had three or four of us doing the same thing. And there were probably a hundred other people in the lobby passing out flyers from their own uh, organization or cause. All of a sudden, I'm smelling marijuana, and I turn around, and here's Abby Hoffman handing me a joint. And uh, <laughs> I, I obviously didn't anticipate that I'd be smoking marijuana in the hotel lobby, but, you know, confronted with the opportunity to smoke a number with, with Abby and Jerry Rubin, I said to myself, I can't pass this up. So, of course, I took the joint and took a hit and passed it on. Uh, and we nobody ever seemed to care. You know, we didn't get in any trouble, although I suspect uh, at the wrong time that would have landed you in jail in Miami Beach. But so it was a fascinating um, convention in, in that for decades to follow, uh, some of the people that played a major role in normal and in the legalization movement, I, I met all at one time in Miami in 72. So what exactly was your relationship with Tom Fursad? Did you know him very well? Well, I, I wouldn't say that we were close friends because Tom was a smuggler. And so obviously, uh, unless you were in that culture yourself, you're probably not going to see a lot of the individual. But I, I certainly stayed in touch with Tom. Uh, and once he had started high times and he would sometimes go out of his way to help us when we were short of money. 
uh, and just quickly a couple of examples. Uh, I called him at one time and indicated I could use a few thousand dollars to cover some expenses. And he said, sure, he could help. And he gave me an address. And he said, come on up to New York and meet me here. So uh, I went up. I think I took the train. Anyway, I arrived at the address. And when I knocked on the door and he opened it, the whole apartment was filled from floor to ceiling with bales of marijuana. <laughs> and I'd never, I'd never seen that much marijuana in my life. And I wasn't very comfortable being in the same goddamn room with it. You know, I'm not a smuggler, but I needed the money. So we chatted for a couple of minutes and Tom gave me, I think it was five or $10,000, but it, you know, certainly was appreciated. So I took the money and got the hell out of there and, and was happy to get home. Uh, Another time I remember, I thought it was particularly fascinating. I called him and, and made the same pitch again. And he said, sure, he could help me. But he wanted me to, uh, he was going to have the money delivered to the normal office on a Sunday morning. And I lived on the, on the third floor of the normal office at the time. So he knew, uh, you know, I would hear the doorbell. He said, I'll have him ring the doorbell. And then you come down and get it. There will be a note. I want you to release the note uh, to the press. So sure enough, Sunday morning came, and I, I was up and around, and I heard the doorbell ring. I went down, and there's this black satchel, and I take it inside. And sure enough, there's 10000 or whatever it was in cash, but there's this <laughs> note that claimed the money was a contribution from the smugglers and growers and cultivators. I mean, I forget all the words he used, but uh, – and, and so I called the Washington Post and the Associated Press, and sure enough, they all went out with a story and a picture of uh, a normal getting this $10,000 contribution in cash. Of course, we claimed it was anonymous and that I didn't have any idea where it came <laughs> from. Now, that, that shows you what an innocent time it was, because if that were to happen today, I assure you, the government would immediately seize the money as proceeds <laughs> yeah. from drug smuggling. But yeah. it was an innocent time. Yeah. Uh, when when Tom – after Tom uh, committed suicide in 1978, uh, you were one of the handful of people, of special guests who went to his memorial service, which was at the top of the World Trade Center, and you got to smoke some of his ashes. Is that is that not the case? <laughs> that, 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 that's absolutely right. Um, it was uh, one of those surreal times. I mean we were all uh, – we, we had actually been at a normal fundraiser at the Playboy Mansion out in Los Angeles when Tom, when we got news of Tom's death. So we, we ended up flying directly from L.A. to New York for the, the ceremony. And um, once we got there, I think it was Craig Capitas uh, from High Times it was the one, but I, it's been a long time. At any event, someone suggested that they had rolled a joint that included some of Tom's ashes. And so... Uh, we all smoked it and passed the joint around. Now, that seemed a little strange at the time. Uh, today, I look at it, and Willie Nelson has a song out that says, Roll me up and smoke <laughs> me when I die. And so I, I guess we were a little ahead of our time with that. <laughs> yeah, you know, and uh, I did – I held a bit of an homage uh, in my own way. Uh, just uh, I, not too many people know about this, but shortly after uh, Michael Kennedy passed away, who was uh, Tom's lawyer and the caretaker of High Times for so many years, my, my boss at High Times really. Um, and a, dear, and a dear, dear friend of mine. Yes, and after he passed away, uh, his widow Eleonora sent some of his favorite staff members – 
bits of his ashes. And so we had a little High Times staff party at my house in California, and I took some solid gold rolling papers, and I put some of Michael's ashes in the joint, and we all shared a joint with Michael's ashes in as an homage to Tom and, and as, out of respect for Mr. Kennedy. So that- and by the way, if, if I can add to that, uh, Eleonora also gave me a, a small sample of Michael's ashes, and I took them to Al Farm, Hunter Thompson's old place out of Aspen, uh, and I took them and spread spread Michael's ashes out where Hunter had his ashes fired off in a rocket. I remember Johnny Depp <laughs> yeah. got involved. So yeah. uh, some, some of Michael's ashes are at Al Farm at, with Hunter. Amazing, amazing. Um, I'd like to go back to 1972 now for a moment, but um, because there's still a, a couple of uh, important things that happened at, in that year. Uh, you held the first National Normal Conference, which was called the People's First Pot Conference, People, right? People's Pot Conference. That's People's right. Pot People's Conference. Pot conference. <laughs> uh, and, uh, and then also that year was the release of the Schaefer Report, which uh, were the findings of the National Commission on Marijuana and Drug Abuse that actually ended up calling for the decriminalization of marijuana possession in the U.S. And Normal was a part of those hearings and played a role in, in advising those findings, did it not? We did indeed. In fact, in a couple of ways. Initially, when the commission was first established, uh, I wrote the executive director of the commission and asked if I could uh, testify before the commission. Um, I was a little naive of me, I suppose, but I thought, you know, I'm running a legalization lobby. Surely they would want to hear from me. Well, within a few days, I got a letter back that essentially said, uh, thanks, but no thanks. We're not interested. So I went back to my advisor, Ramsey Clark, and again, former attorney general, and uh, I said, Ramsey, would you be willing to testify on our behalf? And he said, sure, I'd love to. So I wrote the commission back and said, how about this? How about if our former attorney, U.S. Attorney General, testifies on behalf of Normal? And they wrote back and said, uh, "We're thanks, but no thanks. We'll let you know who we're interested in. We're not interested in either one of you. So <laughs> I, I took that uh, exchange of correspondence to Jack Anderson, who was a, a gossip columnist that was very popular around the country, syndicated in hundreds and hundreds of papers, including the Washington Post. Um, I gave them that story. It appeared in the Washington Post and in hundreds of other papers within a day or two. Well, immediately, Ramsey Clark received a call inviting him to testify at the very <laughs> first set of hearings in Washington, and I received a call inviting me to testify. Now, for me, they, they insisted that I testify at some uh, hearings to be held in San Francisco. They weren't going to let me testify at the main ones here in Washington. But that was fine. I was delighted. I ended up going out and testifying it's where I first met Michael Aldrich and the, uh, the folks who were running Amorphia at the time. Uh, Morphia eventually merged with Normal in 1972 and became our, the West Coast branch of Normal. But um, now, as to the commission, they did an interesting thing. They started off, uh, President Nixon appointed nine of the commissioners, and four of the commissioners were picked by the Congress from among members of Congress. So we always assumed the nine people picked by Nixon were going to be terrible anti-marijuana zealots since Nixon was such an anti-marijuana zealot. But they surprised all of us. Uh, one of the best members was a man named Tom Ungerleiter. He was a Ph.D. from UCLA. And uh, we got to be good friends later. And I learned that during some of their private meetings on the West Coast, 
Tom and others were smart enough to realize that most of the commissioners had never actually seen anyone smoke marijuana. So they didn't know what happened when you get high. They had heard all of these exaggerated claims of, uh, you know, people turning into madmen and, and vicious criminals, but they'd never seen anybody get high. So Tom actually set up a couple of meetings where they would invite some middle-class marijuana smokers to come and spend an hour or two with them and smoke a couple of joints and just chat, etc. And it really converted the majority of the commissioners into realizing this is no big deal and we shouldn't <laughs> treat it as a crime. So they ended up they didn't have the courage to recommend full legalization, meaning where you could go buy it in stores like we're, we're beginning to do now. But they did recommend full decriminalization in which uh, you could possess up to an ounce or two of marijuana and you could give up to an ounce to a friend because they realized that's how, how the marijuana culture worked at the time. Uh, Nixon, of course, had a fit. He wouldn't even receive the report at the White House. He made him uh, <laughs> mail it in. He was so upset. Uh, now, the commission itself went out of business after those two years. So what Normal did was we took that decriminalization report, and for the next seven, eight, nine years, we spent our time traveling around the country. And any place where we could identify a young legislator willing to introduce a version of marijuana decriminalization on the state level, we would support them. We would fly out witnesses to testify on behalf. We had some of the commis former commissioners would testify. We had the former deputy director of DEA who had joined our advisory board. So anyway, we had a lot of we, – we could take what sounded radical initially and have a bunch of, uh, of credible witnesses come in and support it so that the young legislator who had the courage to introduce it uh, would end up, you know, being kind of a hero rather than, <laughs> rather than looking foolish. Yeah. Now, uh, we didn't know who which state was going to uh, finally enact the crim and, and which ones weren't. It turns out Oregon was the first state in 1973. But by 1978, we had enacted decriminalization laws in a total of 11 states. And we thought we were on the way to legalizing marijuana. We thought there was no stopping us. Well, we underestimated the... Uh, the fact that the mood of the country can change. And when Ronald Reagan came in and Nancy Reagan, and if you remember the Just Say No campaign and uh, the How war on drugs. <laughs> yeah, uh, so we, we decriminalized marijuana in 11 states between 73 and 78, and then we didn't win another statewide victory for 18 years. Yeah. That's a long time, man, to go without a victory. Now, we won some local victories, but no statewide victories. But at least we defended the laws that we had gotten passed. They, they tried to revoke some of them, but they did not do it successfully. And then finally, in 1996, California legalized marijuana for medical use, and that was the first major victory we had had in 18 years. And, of course, it also started the whole movement towards medical marijuana. And then more recently, that's led into full legalization for recreational purposes as well. Of course, of course. And we will uh... – get to all of that very very soon uh but before we leave before we leave the year 1972 there's just one more thing i want to bring up uh because it ties directly into a few more items in our collection and that is you know you mentioned a few moments ago about uh in the Schaefer commission how they were under the impression they'd never seen anyone smoke weed and they were under the impression that if you smoked weed you would become a murderous lunatic uh and that of course is because of so much of the propaganda that had come out before and i wanted to ask you uh, about your rediscovery and the re-release of the forgotten anti-weed propaganda film Reefer Madness. Now, in our collection, we have 
a promotional poster for the film and two promotional flyer sheets from a showing of the movie, along with a few other films on there. Interesting. Uh, one billed as a cocaine classic and one called Sin- <laughs> Sinister Harvest uh, that you released in partnership, that normal released in partnership with Ronin Film. Uh, now, obviously, Reefer Madness came out in the 30s, but how did it come into your life and, and how did those screenings come about? Well, uh, by the time I was even made aware of the movie Read for Madness, it was uh, I had a lecture agent, uh, Fenton Communications at the time, uh, handled lectures for individual speakers. And they, they would set up occasions for me to go speak almost always at the college campus. And at some point, uh, they suggested to me, they were aware that Reefer Madness as a film, the copyright had expired on it. And so it was available in the Library of Congress and anyone who wanted could, could go for, uh, you know, a modest amount of money, I don't know, 35 bucks or something, and you could buy a, a full-length copy of Reefer Madness. So uh, I got a copy. I had a friend edit it down because it was like, I don't know, hour and a half, hour and 45 minutes long. It, it really went on far too long. It was like one one long joke, but it was too long. And so um, what I would do, I, I got it edited down to about 35 minutes. And I would go give a lecture that lasted maybe 45 minutes or something. And then uh, we'd turn the lights down. We'd put on our abbreviated version of Reaper Madness and everybody would light up. And so uh, for a few years there, uh, we traveled around. That was one of the major ways we uh, made people aware of normal and raised money and got more activists working with us. But again, uh, it, I, I, I have to give others credit. I, I didn't know the movie was available. I did recognize once I saw it that, my goodness, this thing, uh, it was so overdone that I knew the students would love it. And, of course, they did. So this went on for longer than 1972. You continued to show this film and talk about it for years to come, Normal. Oh, oh, I think uh, probably up through the late 70s. Hmm. That's awesome. Um, well, we need to take a quick commercial break, uh, but don't go anywhere because we'll be right back with more from Keith Strop here on Canthropology. But I want to say to you that as much as I like smoking pot, and I really do, it's not really about pot, or it's only incidentally about pot. It's really about personal freedom. It is none of the government's business whether we smoke or why we smoke. All right, welcome back, everyone. Joining us on today's broadcast is Normal founder Keith Strop. Uh Keith, before the break, you were uh, talking about uh, some of the strides that Normal had made politically in the country for decriminalization and then talked about the dreaded uh, war on drugs, the 80s, the Just Say No era, the Reagan years. Um, Now, you were not technically part of Normal during the 80s, right? Because there was an incident that happened in 1979 between you and uh, one of the Carter administration officials uh, that kind of – Dr. Peter Bourne. That led to that led to you being well, you and him both having to step down from your positions. Uh, can you tell us a little about about that whole situation? Yes, uh, Peter Bourne. Dr. Bourne was at the time uh, the drug advisor uh, to President Carter, uh, and I knew him uh, even during the the Carter campaign. 
uh, he was uh, also a consultant with the Drug Abuse Council, and I was too. And so I, I knew him reasonably well on a professional level. Um, and I knew him well enough to know that he was privately a marijuana smoker himself. So in a lot of ways, it was kind of exciting that, you know, you were going to have this guy advising the president who was sympathetic to, to marijuana smoking. So at some point, we had begun to have a um, difficult relationship with the Carter administration over their use of Paraquat in Mexico or at the Mexican border. Paraquat's an incredibly uh, lethal pesticide poison that uh, I think if you just have a couple of drops on your tongue, I think it, it would be the end of your life. It, it's that sort of deadly stuff. And so when we heard they were spraying it, uh, I called up Dr. Bourne and he invited me over to the White House to talk about it. And uh, I explained to him that uh, we, we couldn't sit by idly and watch them potentially poison marijuana smokers. And, of course, he initially took the position that, well, you know, marijuana is illegal, Keith. So, you know, that's just uh, the way it is. And I said, well, it's illegal, but there shouldn't be a death penalty for it, for Christ's sake. It's a nonviolent offense. And he said, well, he didn't think it was a problem at the border, but the government does – uh, they they seize marijuana at the Mexican border all the time, and periodically they uh, examine it to see if it's got contaminants, etc. So I asked them if they would, over the next couple of months, determine if any of the marijuana seized uh, had paraquat on it. Because what we were hearing was that when you spray it with paraquat, it tends to turn it gold. And if you remember, well, you're not old enough, but back during those years, Acapulco Gold was one of the really sought-after strains of marijuana. I, and I've so, heard. <laughs> uh, we, were, we were concerned that people were going to think they had Acapulco Gold. They were going to smoke Paraquat-laced marijuana. Well, after a month or two, Peter called me back and invited me over to the White House and to give me the results. And it turns out it wasn't real big, but I, I can't remember the exact level, but it was maybe 20% of the marijuana they sampled did, in fact, had levels of, of uh, Paraquat in it. So I, of course, expected they were going to immediately say, OK, we'll, we'll stop using it. Well, they didn't. They insisted that they had a right to use it because marijuana was illegal. So based on that, my uh, what had been a, a reasonably long term relationship with Dr. Bourne had, had soured significantly. And he had come to a party a few months before that uh, that Normal had held in downtown Washington and Hunter Thompson was there, and uh, Christy Hefner was there, and all kinds of celebrities were there, and uh, as well as all kinds of activists. There were probably 400 people at the party, and it was in a big house that had three floors. And uh, at some point, um, I uh, someone came running up to me and said, Dr. Bourne is, has arrived, Peter Bourne, the president's drug advisor. Well, I actually I don't think I even knew he was coming, but I, of course, I was delighted, so I went over to say hello to him, et cetera. And a couple of friends of mine that he knew, mutual friends were talking to him. And one of them came up to me and said, Keith, uh, Dr. Bourne would like uh, a hit of Coke. And <laughs> even though even though Coke was, was fairly prominent in those years, and certainly in my life and my friends, oftentimes somebody would have a gram of Coke in, the, in their Coke pocket. I didn't at the time, but... Uh, I went. I said, "Well, yeah, I can probably help out there." So I went to a friend and said, 
do you have do you have any coke with you and they said sure and i said well if you don't mind let's go upstairs and so we walked upstairs there were like two two flights of stairs but it was an open flight of stairs so everybody could see you going up there and we had a band playing downstairs and it was you know it's almost like being in a nightclub well we go upstairs and we sit down and we all snort a little coke and pass it around snort a little more and go back downstairs and after a while dr Bourne left well Unfortunately, there were at least two journalists who were in that room <laughs> when we were snorting coke. And one of them was a guy who worked for Jack Anderson. Remember, I mentioned earlier that it uh, had a, a popular syndicated column. Uh, so he had called me uh, sometime shortly after the event and said, Keith, I, I want to confirm that uh, Dr. Bourne was snorting coke. I said, no, you're not going to confirm it for me. <laughs> and so, so I, I thought and this, keep was, in mind, this is the, this is basically the drug czar, right? Of the country. Yes, that's right. And we he's at a pot party drug. snorting coke. Okay. Just, I had <laughs> to point that right. out. I had to point that out. Go ahead. <laughs> so uh, at any event, I, I, of course, refused to confirm it. He couldn't go with the story without some source. So I thought it was dead. I thought there was no problem. Well, as it turns out, a few months later, Dr. Bourne ended up getting caught up in a bit of a scandal where he had prescribed quaaludes. Remember the era of quaaludes. And he had prescribed, given a prescription of quaaludes to uh, an assistant of his, a staff member, and he had done it in a fake name. So it was totally illegal what he had done. And somehow that came out publicly. And so I get a call from Jack Anderson's assistant saying, Keith, uh, we're going with this big story on Peter Bourne, so I've got to use this thing now. I'm going to use this thing about him snorting coke at your party. Uh, do you confirm or deny it? Well, like an idiot, uh, I said, I neither confirm nor deny, which is a stupid code phrase that you often hear in <laughs> Washington when it means, of course, it's true, but I'm not going to acknowledge <laughs> yeah. it officially. Yeah. So um, having said that, uh, I, I, I think – Two minutes later, I realized, oh, what the shit did I just do? The next morning, of course, the Washington Post had a headline about Dr. Bourne snorting coke, and it had my quote about, uh, I will neither confirm nor deny. Well, uh, within a day, Dr. Bourne had had to resign, and I didn't have to resign initially, but I realized fairly quickly that uh, I was simply too hot to handle, as long as I was being seen as the the major spokesperson for normal politicians were simply afraid to deal with me. afraid I was going to get them in trouble. So I, I stayed on the normal board until I think 81 or 82. But at some point I stepped aside entirely and did other public interest work for about 12 years. It was in 1994 uh, that the normal board of directors was uh, uh, being reformed. They'd asked Dr. Lester Grinspoon at Harvard to pull together a new board of directors. They'd kind of gotten uh, in a place where they couldn't seem to get any any work done because there was too much divisiveness on the board. So they invited me and a number of other people, Dr. John Morgan and Lynn, Lynn Zimmer and others, to form a new board. And I was only too happy to do so. I wasn't sure if I'd still enjoy it after all these years. But within about six months, uh, Dick Cowan, who was then the executive director at Normal, stepped aside, and the board asked me if I would step in as executive director again. So I did that starting in 95, and I served as executive director through 2005. At that point, I decided that I was getting to be a little old for this marijuana smoking lobby, and so uh, I stepped aside. Alan St. Pierre was 
uh, moved up to our executive director, and uh, he asked me if I would stay on as legal counsel, and um, here I am 15, 20 years later. Yeah. You know, interestingly enough, you returned to normal in 1994, and that is the same year that I started working at High Times. (laughs) And I I, I don't recall the first time I met you exactly, but I know it was very early on in my career there. Um, And you and I have gotten high on too many occasions together, too many (laughs) occasions to count, uh, many times at the High Times office, at the Cannabis Cup, I think in Amsterdam, um, at at the High Times anniversary parties, and, uh, and of course every year at the Boston Freedom Rally. Um, and I remember one time in particular when we were partying at some nightclub uh, that a friend of Danny Danko's owned in Boston, and you ended up getting us thrown out of the place because you kept lighting joints over and over again after the managers told us not to. And I felt, <laughs> I felt kind of bad for them because they were so proud to have pot stars like us in their club that they really didn't want to have to throw us out. They loved having us there, but you kind of left them no choice. And it was so funny because this is something that we've, I mean, as working for High Times for so many years, we had been thrown out out of so many bars and clubs and restaurants for smoke for lighting up because we just didn't give a shit. <laughs> well, I, you know, it, it used to be. I now look back on a lot of those, and I, and I have to laugh at myself because I think I clearly was overdoing it. But uh, it, it used to seem important that we demonstrate that there's nothing wrong with responsible use of marijuana, goddammit. Civil disobedience. It's hard, it's, Yes, it's hard to it, – that's right. It's a version of civil disobedience. So, for example, at one board meeting in the, about that same period of time uh, that we held in Boston, we were – I forget now, but it was one of their fancy hotels, and we were in the dining room. There were about 20 of us after a board meeting. I just lit up a joint and started passing it around. There were probably 80 other people in the dining room, none of whom – most of whom probably didn't even recognize what marijuana smoke smelled like. But pretty soon the management came over, and even then, to their credit, they simply asked – they said smoking is not allowed in the dining room. They didn't even mention marijuana, and they didn't throw us out. But uh, But you're absolutely right. I'm afraid there were a lot of times – when uh, we felt obliged to practice civil disobedience, even when it may have been to the embarrassment of some of our supporters and friends, I wouldn't I wouldn't do that today, to be honest. I'd be far more sensitive about when and where I smoke. But back then, uh, it really was seen as a, an act of civil disobedience. And it was almost like if you really feel sincere about legalizing marijuana, then goddammit, you got to stand up and do it. Well, you did just that uh, in Boston in 2007 when you and former High Times associate publisher Rick Cusick were famously arrested for smoking a joint at the 18th annual uh, Boston Freedom Rally at Boston Common. And Rick, who who is also on our museum's advisory board, was actually my guest on the show last week. And as he's told me many on many occasions – Getting busted with you was one of the proudest moments of his life. Now, I know this. I know the story very well, but for the benefit of our listeners, would you mind giving us a little brief recounting of the incident and what you guys were trying to accomplish? Sure. Uh, the Boston Freedom Rally is sort of a East Coast version of the Seattle Hempfest. I've always enjoyed attending both of them when, when I can. Um, and especially before marijuana had been legalized any place, it was one of those occasions where if you had 40 or 50,000 people, which the Boston Freedom Rally generally would have at least that many, uh, and you all broke the law at the same time, the law was kind of helpless. What are they going to do? They might arrest three or four people around the edges, but they can't get to the, the majority of the people who are smoking. And uh, so we, we used to call them in the early years smoke-ins or smoke-outs. 
but Boston calls it the Freedom Rally on the on the common. Uh, usually, High Times and Normal most years would share a, a booth or a tent. And uh, we were again that year. And Rick would often represent High Times at the event. I, oftentimes, I would be representing Normal. So. Uh, we're there just doing our usual thing. Uh, both of us were scheduled to speak a little later in the day, but this was earlier. And I said to Rick, why don't we uh, step around behind the booth and uh, smoke a joint? So I pulled one out and we walked around and lit it up and took a couple of hits. And all of a sudden, coming running down from a hill above us were these two undercover narcs. One of them grabbed Rick by the shoulder. And Rick, again, he's younger than me, but he's got long gray hair too. I do. And uh, uh, one of them grabbed me by the shoulder. And as they're taking us in, they say to me, you're old enough, you should know better, and, which I always found fascinating. <laughs> it wasn't that I was smoking marijuana that caused them to get so damn upset. It was I was too damn old to smoke marijuana. <laughs> <laughs> so they took us over to a, a tent. They had a holding tent because, of course, they had arrest, you know, a couple of dozen other mostly youngsters. And when they got us in the tent and they saw that we had these big badges that identified us as speakers, and they kind of said, oh, what have we done now? So they huddled and came over and said, I'll tell you what, we're going to give you a, a citation, and you can deal with that with the Boston you know, police later. But for today, if you'll walk out of here and act like you're leaving the Boston Common, go around and come in from the other side, as long as you don't smoke openly anymore there – we're not proud of you, and we're going to let you speak. And so sure enough, we did. We walked around the common, came back in, gave our speeches. I don't remember if we were smoking anymore or not. I have to imagine we probably were. But at any event, one of the reasons why uh, neither Rick or I were much worried about it was we, it was less than a joint. It was like a, a half a roach. <laughs> and it, Boston, or Massachusetts was very close at the time to decriminalizing marijuana. In fact, I think they decriminalized it maybe a year later. We were among the last to be arrested. And most importantly, we knew we would have this team of legal experts and medical experts who would come <laughs> to our assistance, and we would use it as a show trial. And that's exactly what we did. When we got to court, the first judge says, well, how much marijuana is involved? And the guy holds up this baggie that has a half a roach <laughs> in it. And the, the judge says, well, I'll tell you what, if they'll pay court costs, we'll just dismiss it. And our lawyer, who was a, a Harvard professor who uh, was doing a pro bono, jumps up and says, no, Your Honor, they insist on their right to a jury trial. And he said, well, then I'll just waive the court costs. And, you know, just let's just move it on. They said, no, Your Honor, they want to go to trial. And the judge at that point realizes that we were looking for a, a, a chance, chance for jury nullification. We thought yeah. if we could have a story in the Boston Globe about these two smokers being acquitted, uh, it, it would suggest to other people who were getting busted, go to trial. Don't don't plead guilty. So at any event, we we get to trial and they're selecting the jury. And by the way, a trial, but both Rick and I took the stand under oath and said, of course we were smoking marijuana. Why else would you be at the, at the Boston Freedom <laughs> Rally? That's all it was for. So we get to selecting the jury, and the judge says, uh, it, now I assume you all can set aside your personal biases and, and deal with this in a fair manner. This one guy raises his hand. He says, Your Honor, I don't care if they light a joint up on the stand. I wouldn't vote 
to guilty, I would vote to acquit them. Well, at that point, of course, he gets thrown out of the jury pool and we have to bring somebody else in. I wish he would have kept quiet, uh, but it only took the jury, I think, an hour and a half or something before they came back with a conviction. But the judge, who was really an interesting judge, he uh, he understood that we were honestly testing the constitutionality of the statute. So he refused any fine. He refused any probation. What the, what the prosecutor wanted. He wanted both Rick and I to be drug tested because he knew we'd never get through probation with drug testing. Right. But the judge says, nope, no probation, no bond, uh, no parole, no bond, no nothing. Case dismissed. So if we had a we had a, a, a chance to push the system without any real risk to ourselves. For most Americans, when they're arrested on a marijuana charge, it's a far more serious case, and it costs it, it damages their life a lot more than it would for Rick or I. Yeah, yeah. You mentioned also uh, the Seattle Hemp Fest, uh, and I happen to uh, have had the honor of. Uh, I have it on video where you and I were at the Seattle Hemp Fest. I believe it was 2008, and I had and I passed you what at the time was the world's largest joint. <laughs> was this giant? <laughs> I remember joint. that. And I have yeah. a video of that, which is real fun. And then uh, the other event I wanted to ask you about was the uh, Hash Bash in Ann Arbor, which is another great cannabis event, uh, probably the best one in the Midwest, I would say, and uh, longest running certainly. And uh, we have a, co- a photograph in the collection of someone's back speaking to the crowd at the 2000. 2001 hash bash and I, I i'm pretty sure it's you what what is your take on that well you're probably right uh i uh, had gone to the original free john sinclair rally that uh, john lennon and yoko ono held uh, and at the time uh, john sinclair had been sentenced to i think nine and a half or ten years in state prison and had already served i think close to a year uh, and he'd been arrested, you know, more than once, but it was always for, you know, an ounce or something. Uh, at any event, uh, I remember the uh, impression I had when I was there and, and uh, when they had this Chrysler Stadium filled with people protesting prohibition. And sure enough, within a week or 10 days after that free John Sinclair rally, the Michigan Supreme Court uh, found an excuse to open his case and let him out of prison. Now, they would never acknowledge it had anything to do with the public protest, but the timing was such that it was it was hard not to believe it. Well, I became friends with John after he was let out of jail, so I went to the hash bash a number of times, including I was just there last year. Um, I, I think it's a marvelous event. It's got an absolutely fabulous history to it. Uh, this year, unfortunately, they're having to do it virtually, as most other people are yeah. at 420. But without a doubt, it's it's been the Midwest uh, most uh, most effective, most popular protest. And John Sinclair also, I should mention, is on our museum advisory board, and he also attended the first normal conference that we talked about in D.C. back in uh, '72. Right? Yes, he did. he did indeed. He did indeed. Cool, cool. Well, we have one final item in our collection that I wanted to ask you about, and uh, I believe it's from the normal conference in 2010 that was held in Los Angeles, if I'm not mistaken, but I'm going to ask you if you remember the circumstances behind it. It's a piece of art. Uh, it's a watercolor uh, painting, uh, and it has the word normal. Uh, and it has some like flowers and a sunset and stuff. And it was really a cute little watercolor painting, and it's signed by 
both you and Alan St. Pierre, who you mentioned earlier, uh, was the executive director for some years. Um, do you happen to remember uh, anything about the artist or, or what the circumstances were about that piece <laughs> of art? Probably not. <laughs> no, I, I don't. But I, mean, I enjoyed it when I uh, saw a picture of it. I thought it was actually quite nicely done. And I realized I had signed it. And, and I think I said, stay high, Keith Strop. Um, so we were clearly using it as an art auction to raise money because that's the only reason I would have signed it. But I, what I'm sorry to say is I can't give proper credit to the artist because I don't remember who did it. <laughs> yeah, and the artist didn't sign it, unfortunately. So I guess no, uh, right. if someone – we'll post it on our site, and if anyone knows, they can always uh, let us know. But um, all right, we need to take one more quick break. But when we come back, we'll be asking Keith uh, a little about some of his other pot star pals. So don't go away. I smoke pot and I like it a lot. All right, welcome back to Canthropology. Once again, I'm your host, Bobby Black, and our guest today is the founder of the National Organization for the Reform of Marijuana Laws, Mr. Keith Strop. Uh, as I mentioned back in the introduction, uh, Keith, you've forged some close, lasting friendships with some of the biggest icons in the counterculture over the years, many of whom we've already touched on earlier. But I thought it would be really fun to do like a quick rundown of highlights from some of those relationships of the people maybe we haven't spoken about. I'm going to throw out a few names, uh, and for each name, I'd love if you could tell us very briefly how you, how you met the person and uh, maybe share a favorite memory or moment uh, involving that person, Okay. Mm-hmm. So we talked about Hugh Hefner already. We talked about Hunter Thompson and Abby Hoffman, uh, and we just discussed John Sinclair. Uh, how about Willie Nelson? Well, Willie, um, I, I think Willie is the world's most beloved marijuana smoker. I used to tell him that, and we would laugh, and then I would follow up by reminding him he was the only beloved marijuana smoker <laughs> in America. <laughs> For some reason, because of Willie's charming country style – and the fact that he had the courage to be out front about his, his love of marijuana his whole adult life, um, I think he's, he has always been an enormous, powerful force for ending marijuana prohibition. As much as they wanted to advance the, the uh, stereotype of the stupid stoner, uh, you always had Willie Nelson, who uh, everybody in America loves and, and, uh, and recognized as a marijuana smoker. I met him uh, – during the campaign, during the Carter campaign for presidency, um, I had met Willie a time or two at a concert where I had managed to go backstage and introduce myself. And uh, so I knew him slightly. But then once Carter got into office, uh, frankly, I used to hang out to some degree with the Carter boys. And uh, they were marijuana smokers, especially Chip was. <laughs> and uh, so uh, I, the first time I remember really spending a lot of nice private time with Willie had to do with the concert. After the concert, I had gone out to the concert uh, on a, a bus uh, that the White House staff had pulled together, and I had friends working at the White House, so they had invited me. And once we got there, uh, I saw Chip was there, and we had met a time or two. So uh, I asked Chip if he'd like to go back and hang out with Willie after the concert. He said, said yeah, I'd love to. So we we ended up going back and spending the evening. Oftentimes, Willie stays on his bus, but back then, sometimes if he was going to be in a city for a couple of days, he'd get a hotel room for a night or two. Um, so I remember going back and, and spending the evening with Willie and Chip and 
etc. So uh, I, I've had lots of times over the uh, you know the last forty years when I spent time with Willie. Sometimes it's been uh, oh at Farm Aid. Sometimes he once held a benefit golf tournament for Normal at his private golf course outside of Austin, Texas. Um, uh, probably after we're off the program, I'll, I'll think of some other things. But I, but I have to say, he's one of the most uh, generous people I've ever known. I mean, his spirit, his uh, he, he's not afraid to, to uh, talk truth to power. In fact, I think he, he enjoys it a great deal. So um, he's been a wonderful advocate for normal and for marijuana legalization, for sure. Now, he's getting up in years, like myself. And so uh, he's obviously uh, not as active as he used to be, but he's still out there doing concerts. Uh, yeah. So I'm sure, uh, you know, again, one of the one of the songs he's done recently is Roll Me Up and Smoke Me When I Die. <laughs> and there's a there's a second one he did that also was about marijuana. I'm forgetting which one it is now. Uh, but he uh, he's. He's still not timid. He's still an advocate, yep. I can assure you. Well, I, I I have to ask because since you had met Willie during the Carter administration and you were both friends with the Carter boys, as you say, uh, Willie famously talks about how he smoked a joint on the roof of the White House with the Carters. And I have to ask, were you there? Did you Were you part of that smoke sesh? <laughs> you know, someone apparently when they were retelling that story over the years must have added me to it because I have – and asked many times over the years if it was true that I smoked a joint with Willie on the roof of the White House. I wish it were true, but it <laughs> is not. <laughs> I, I was not there. And I must say that I, I actually never did smoke inside the White House because when I was there, I was in the West Wing. I was in the, the office part. I wasn't in the private quarters. So there would have been no – I mean, you know, if I had lit up a joint, I assure you I would have been risked off to federal prison in record time. Uh, but – but but the story about Willie, in fact, is accurate. I've talked to Willie about it before. <laughs> and uh, so the other person I really wanted to ask you about, uh, since we've touched on most of the other uh, counterculture icons, is uh, is Dr. Lester Grinspoon. Um, obviously, you and he are, are good friends. Uh, uh, I know I know Dr. Grinspoon, uh, and he's a he's a wonderful man, and considered the godfather of medical marijuana. Really, can you tell us a little about how you met Lester and and what that relationship has been like over the years? Well, uh, I, I first met him because he wrote uh, back in 19, I believe it was 70, could have been 71, I think. He came out with a book called Marijuana Reconsidered, and it's been revised a couple of times since then, but I still consider that the most comprehensive book ever written, uh, arguing the merits of ending prohibition and substituting a system of regulation and control. It was a, a marvelous book. So. I made a point to look him up, and in fact, I think the first time I met him, he was testifying before the Marijuana Commission at one of the hearings here in Washington, one of the hearings where Ramsey Clark also testified. Uh, but at any event, I very quickly developed a professional relationship with him, and of course later we became good friends as well. And he joined the, the normal advisory board initially, but then joined our board of directors and served as chairman for many, many years. I consider him the intellectual godfather of the entire legalization movement. I do not think we would be where we are today, uh, but for Dr. Grinspoon, he's a fabulous man. And, and, and still today, I mean, he still publishes papers occasionally, et cetera. He's mostly retired now. But again, if somebody's looking for 
what, what I consider the most comprehensive book on the need to legalize marijuana. Look at Marijuana Reconsidered by Dr. Lester Grinspoon. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a classic. It's, an, you know, everyone in the marijuana community, I, I would hope at this point, knows about it, just like The Emperor Wears No Clothes. It's one of those Bibles that you just have to have. Um, you mentioned that he was on the Normal Advisory Board. And as I mentioned, uh, both Rick Cusick and John Sinclair are on our Museum Advisory Board. Um, so, Keith, I just have to ask, would you do us the honor of joining our Museum Advisory Board as well? Bobby, I would be flattered. Well, that is just fantastic. <laughs> we would love to include you and uh, make you part of our efforts. And uh, as the museum moves forward and we eventually open our physical location, uh, we will uh, keep you in the loop and bring you out for the opening and all that great stuff. I look forward to it. And also, I hopefully we can get a few things from uh, uh, the University of Massachusetts Library serves as a host to the normal archives. And they've got a lot of our early files up there. And hopefully, uh, when you get a little further down the road, we can um, arrange to go up there and look through that and see if we can't borrow a few items for your, for your museum. Absolutely. And with your uh, with your good word, I'm sure we'll be able to get a couple of gems to include. And uh, also, of course, if there's any uh, items in your personal archives, like smoking related stuff, we would always be open to that as well. Um, we'll have to we'll have to look through your stuff at some point. We'll come uh, we'll come out and take a look at what you got. Um, <laughs> but uh, so what are you working on lately? Any projects uh, that we should keep an eye out for or, um, you know, any anything normal has coming up big in the future? Well, uh, like any organization that holds meetings, we're in a period of, of uh, you know, chaos right now. Uh, I generally spend a lot of my time pulling together the two legal seminars that Norma holds, one in Aspen in early June and one in Key West in early December. But we had to postpone the program that was scheduled for, I think, March 27th, 28th, and 29th. Uh, because sure. obviously with the current travel restrictions, uh, you're not going to have anybody attending your seminar. Uh, so we've rescheduled it to a uh, August, late August date. So I'm still working on that. Um, and a lot of what I focus on now or what I consider uh, the nuances of the legalization movement, as long as marijuana remains a crime, then obviously you got to focus on decriminalizing the marijuana smoker. As long as they treat us like criminals, we don't have the luxury of arguing that we want our marijuana tested or that uh, that, we, that we don't think we, we ought to have to fight to maintain custody of our minor children simply because the parents may smoke marijuana. But in fact, today, you do have to fight about those things. Now that we've legalized medical use in, I think, 33 states and and legalized uh, recreational use in 11 or maybe now 12 states, we can begin to actually insist on what we, sh we wanted all along. And that is we want marijuana smokers to be treated fairly in all aspects of their lives. And that means, as they say, I don't want to be charged with a DUID unless there's some evidence that I was impaired when I was driving. In most states today, if you've just got THC in your system, they don't have to show any impairment. You're charged with DUID. Yeah. In some states, it's per se. They don't even have to prove. They just show you have it in your blood. Uh, as I mentioned with child custody, in a lot of states, uh, uh, you, you will have to fight to retain custody of your child if a nosy neighbor smells marijuana and reports you to the child welfare agency. The assumption is if you smoke marijuana, you're an unfit parent. Well, that's absurd, and it's time to put that behind us. 
uh, job discrimination. In most states today, even states where they've legalized marijuana, a, a private employer is still allowed to fire you if you test positive for THC without any indication that you came to work in an impaired condition. So we now have the luxury as a consumer lobby on working on some of these nuances of the issue that we would have loved to have worked on a long time ago, but you couldn't do it as long as marijuana smoking was still considered a crime. So it's a, it's a great time to be working on the issue. Excellent. Right on. Well, uh, where can people connect with you and with Normal Online? Uh, www.normal.org. Just remember there's no A in normal, N-O-R-M-L, and it's .org because we're a nonprofit. Um, and you can call at 202-483-5500. Be delighted to hear from anybody. And uh, if, you know, if something's going on in your community and you, you don't think it's being done well or you think somebody needs to raise hell about it, get in touch with us and we'll put you in touch with the normal group in your area. We have normal organizations working in almost every state in the country. And in fact, in many states, we have several groups. And I think we have groups in 15 foreign countries, normal groups. So uh, get in touch and, and let's finish the job. Well, Keith, uh, it has been an absolute pleasure speaking with you today. Uh, Thank you so much for taking time out to join us and for all the great work you've done over the years. On behalf of all of us potheads out here, we truly appreciate it. (laughs) From one stoner to another, Bobby. Nice talking to you. (laughs) All right. You take care, my friend. Bye-bye. And that's going to wrap it up for this edition of Canthropology. For more information on today's topic to read our Canthropology blog, or to learn more about the World of Cannabis Museum project, please visit our website at worldofcannabis.museum. A quick shout out to our great media partners, Cannabis Radio, Hayes Radio, and Beard Brothers Media, as well as Leaf, Skunk, Canasaur, Canapolitan, Greenleaf, and Nuggle Magazines. If there's a guest or topic you'd like to hear us cover, or you have an item you think is worthy of inclusion in our museum, you can hit us up on social media or shoot us an email at canthropology at gmail.com. If you've enjoyed this show, we invite you to go ahead and click that subscribe button, leave us a review, share it with friends, and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Thanks again for listening. Join me again next time when my guest will be the High Priest of Cannabis Americana, counterculture artist Pat Ryan. Until then, this is Bobby Black, and I am history.